from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Ben Terrace coming from The Washington Post. Hi, Jeff. Miss Winfrey, Oprah. Hi there. How are you? It's Lisa Bonas calling from The Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, April 21st. Today, hopes and fears after a guilty verdict. Refugees left in limbo. And the man who changed what it means to be vice president. After I heard that the verdict was coming down, I sped down to Houston to specifically CUNY Homes in Third Ward, which is the neighborhood where George Floyd grew up. Arelise Hernandez is a reporter for The Post based in Texas. And the first place I went was the mural at the food store that's right next to CUNY Homes. It's George's face, that iconic image with wings around him against a blue background. And this mural has become a sacred spot. That's where I found a group of people who were embracing one another, celebrating to some degree, but also reflecting on what had just happened. You feel like justice has been served. Travis Keynes is Floyd's childhood friend. They grew up together there in CUNY Homes, and he's sort of made himself out to be the caretaker to some degree of this mural, along with several other people from the neighborhood. Travis was also just elated. That's what we are. That's what we do. And, you know, when when a nation comes together and the world comes together for injustice, this is what you get. You get right out of it. You know what I mean? Because God sits high. And he looks low. He had faith that this was going to happen for for George Floyd and and for the country. And who else did you talk to while you were out there? I saw Paris Green and her mom, Danielle. I had just walked in the door from work. I turned on the TV and I screamed so loud. I just screamed. And she was in the shower. She said, what happened? And I said, guilty, guilty, guilty. The Greens actually knew George. They had met him at a relative's home during the holidays. Their relative basically opened her home to anyone in and around CUNY homes to come and have a plate of food. And George Floyd was one of these individuals. Every time I see Floyd, I remember the day we went to our aunt's house. And I thought he was my cousin, and he wasn't. So I always just think about that moment. I always say, why did we see him that day? And for Paris in particular, who's 24 years old, in that moment, she told me that she just was reflecting on the fact that this was a man that she knew that she had seen and that it was still very difficult to come to terms with the fact that someone that you knew could be gone and and has catapulted into this, you know, symbol for racial justice in this country. And it was catharsis. It was relief. But in the words of her mom, Danielle. So this was a temporary relief. That's all that it was. It was kind of like the scab finally covered one wound, but you have a whole big, huge wound that still has yet to recover. There's so much more left to do in terms of the cause for racial justice. What you're describing, I think, is reflected in how so many people are feeling right now around the country. This mix of gratitude for what a lot of people see as a 
positive outcome in this one case, but also even the recognition that during the course of this trial, there have been other police shootings in which other people have died at the hands of police. And so it seems like this moment is really fraught in trying to recognize the importance of this one case, but also seeing the fact that this one case doesn't speak to all the many other killings that have happened in the past few weeks or the past few months or past few years. That's exactly right. In the same breath that people were grateful and celebrating this verdict, they invoked the name of Dante Wright. And we're not done yet. You know what I mean? You know, we're fighting for the George Floyds and the Maude Arbery's and Breonna Taylor's. Dante White. Uh, from all of us. You know what I'm saying? Dante White, all of us. You know what I mean? You know, which happened just a few days ago in the middle of all this drama. And actually, right before the verdict came down, an Ohio police officer fatally shot a 16-year-old black girl. The circumstances of that are still not completely clear. I believe some video has been released. But again, it's that this is an ongoing issue. And a fear amongst advocates, amongst Black Americans, amongst people who care about this issue and this cause for racial justice, that people around this country are going to wash their hands and say, you know, the justice system did what it's supposed to do. It has responded in this case, and therefore we fixed it. And that's a real palpable fear and concern that people are expressing at these various celebrations that are taking place across the country, and in particular in Houston, that we will forget that this is just the beginning, that it took this incredibly egregious case for a police officer, a former police officer in this case, to be convicted, but that there are several other cases, there are several other incidents, there are other lives that also mattered in all of this. It also seems like in the aftermath of this verdict, there are a lot of officials on the state level, a lot of officials on the federal level who are using this as the moment where they want to announce change. We can't stop here. In order to deliver real change and reform, we can and we must do more to reduce the likelihood that tragedies like this will ever happen and occur again. Whether it is President Biden or the Department of Justice announcing that they're going to probe Minneapolis police practices. Yesterday's verdict in the state criminal trial does not address potentially systemic policing issues in Minneapolis. There is the George Floyd Act in Congress. We have passed and sent to the Senate the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act so it can become the law of the land. And as there is this surge of discussion around, maybe this will be the thing that changes on a federal level. I wonder how much of those promises or those actions are resonating with the people that you've talked to who just miss George, who are reflecting in this moment about what this means for them and the people that they love. The people who knew George and loved him personally as a family member or as a friend, I think are already at this point where they realize that this verdict is important. It's important to a healing process, to a grieving process uh, that they are personally undertaking. But they also recognize that this is a pivot point, right? That this is an inflection point in a much broader American story. And I think the other thing that people, particularly in Houston and Third Ward, are looking for is 
action beyond this verdict to come from their local lawmakers, from their national lawmakers. There are plenty of pieces of legislation that are now pending and under consideration in state legislatures um, and local city councils at the national level that they want to see move forward and and the work to sort of come and into fruition after the fact. And I think, you know, they're going to be watching very carefully to see whether the words match the actions of their leaders. Aurelise Hernandez is a reporter for The Post based in Texas. The story was produced by Ted Muldoon. Immigration was not an issue that Joe Biden emphasized when he ran for president. It's an issue that has divided Democrats and Republicans. And he ran as somebody who was a unifier. I'm going to bring the country together. So this is a polarizing issue. And the polarizing issues are the ones that this White House tends to have trouble navigating. And we're seeing that play out right now with the politics of immigration. Sean Sullivan covers the White House for The Post. Over the past couple of months, there has been something unusual that has happened at the White House with refugee policy, something that has surprised and concerned a lot of people. Initially, the president back in February made a promise that he was going to raise the cap on the number of refugees that could come to the United States and raise it significantly. I'm approving an executive order to begin the hard work of restoring our refugee admissions program to help meet the unprecedented global need. It's going to take time to rebuild what has been so badly damaged. But that's precisely what we're going to do. And then he did nothing for a long time until last week when he said that he was keeping the cap where it was during the end of the Trump administration. This angered a lot of Democrats and within hours, his administration backtracked and said, we expect to raise it, just not to the level that the president had previously announced, probably. This was always meant to be just the beginning. Uh, in the announcement we made on Friday, we were clear in the emergency presidential determination that if 15,000 is reached, uh, a subsequent presidential determination would be issued to increase admissions as appropriate. Uh, and that is certainly our expectation. And this entire situation caused a lot of strife, a lot of anger, a lot of concern in the Democratic Party to levels we never really saw so far when it came to Biden and his relationship with fellow Democrats. So who are we actually talking about here in terms of refugees? Are these people who are currently in the U.S. and hoping that they'll be able to stay? Are these people who are outside the U.S.? Well, the United States has long had a refugee program that allows people to apply to come to the United States if they're fleeing oppression, if they're fleeing persecution, civil war, strife. 
really, really dire situations abroad. And this process is a really detailed one. So you have to start applying before you arrive in the United States. There are background checks, there are interviews, there are numerous steps and hurdles involved in order to gain clearance to come to the United States. So it's a very, very detailed program. And for a lot of these refugees, they're fleeing really, really difficult circumstances. And so there is an urgency on the part of human rights advocates who are trying to help them come over to do that as quickly as possible and to allow as many of them as possible to come over. So so there are people who are still waiting in other countries and hoping to be able to come here. That's right. And they haven't been able to do that in many cases because of the delay that we saw from this White House in figuring out what its policy was going to be on refugees. So can you kind of take me back to this original pledge that was made by President Biden? What was his motivation for pledging something that was so ambitious? And how did he plan to execute that? Well, let's go back to February. We're you know, only a few weeks into the Biden presidency. And you see from President Biden day after day this desire to say, we are charting a new course from the one that President Trump did. We are not the Trump administration on a range of issues. They tried to send that message pretty, pretty directly and bluntly. And this was part of that. And so the president in early February goes to the State Department and he gives a speech. The speech is pretty hyped and he's talking about sort of his foreign policy agenda and vision. And he talks about refugees. The United States' moral leadership on refugee issues was a point of bipartisan consensus for so many decades when I first got here. We shine the light of lamp of liberty on oppressed people. We offered safe havens for those fleeing violence or persecution. And our example pushed other nations to open wide their doors as well. So today... And his message is basically, look, it's a new day. We are going to accept more refugees than the last administration did. And to prove that we're serious about that. And I'm directing the State Department to consult with Congress about making a down payment on that commitment as soon as possible. And so the number he gave in that speech was 125000 That's for the following fiscal year, which starts in October. The down payment then came in the form of a communication to Congress in February where he said the target we're putting forth is 62500 for this fiscal year. Then nothing happened for several weeks. Several weeks turned into months. And so what we heard finally from the White House last week was that the president was not going to immediately raise the cap on refugees from the number President Trump set it at. And that number is 15,000. That is a record low for refugees. President Trump had a very hard line policy when it came to refugees and immigration more broadly. And this decision angered a lot of Democrats across the political spectrum. We hear from so many people um, in the United States who have family members that they themselves have sponsored, uh, who are asking what is taking so long, when they will be reunited with their family members. That is Representative Ilhan Omar of Minnesota. She went on MSNBC earlier this week to talk about the refugee cap, and she called on President Biden to raise it. This is, you know, something that people had high hopes for, something people fought so hard uh, to make sure um, that this new administration was going to be able to do. Uh, And it's just, you know, with desperation and frustration that we are speaking out uh, against the Biden administration um, in their, their backtracking on this. 
And so what happens between February and last week? How is it that Biden shifted so dramatically in his thinking around this refugee cap? Well, one big thing that happened in that time period was we saw a volatile situation on the border become a major problem, both policy-wise and politically, for the president and for this White House. You know, the situation on the border, which we've seen erupt over the last few months, has been one that Biden has struggled to deal with, has been struggled to sort of articulate his strategy on. And even though that situation was erupting at the time that he gave that speech, it had not become a big national story. And in the weeks following his speech, it did become a big national story. It became a vulnerability for the administration, something they had to answer questions about every single day, something they struggled to talk about and explain. And as time went on, that situation at the border became a political liability and also a policy liability What we found was that the president himself was very, very concerned about lifting this cap, even though he had promised to do so earlier in his presidency earlier this year. And really, in the end, it was his own misgivings more than anything else that drove this inaction is what we found uh, as we talked to people familiar with the matter. And what they told us was that the president looked at the situation on the border that has been unfolding over the last few months uh, as we've seen this increase, the number of migrants uh, arriving at the border, number of unaccompanied children arriving at the border. He, He grew concerned about the way the government was responding to that, specifically about the way the Office of Refugee Resettlement was responding to that. What we also found was that this opinion that he had was not one that was unanimously shared across the government. In fact, even at high levels, this was not an opinion that was shared all the way across. And in fact, Biden's own Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, somebody he's very close to, has worked with for a long time, approached him about this in March. And effectively, the president overruled Blinken overruled other officials and made the decision that he did, which has caused a lot of political problems for for this administration over the last week. And so how did that announcement get rolled out that this cap that Biden had previously promised was now so much lower? Well, it sort of came together hastily on Friday morning. The White House put out word that this was going to be the policy that they were not lifting it, at least immediately, above the 15,000. They did announce some changes. They did say, look, we are going to change the regional allocation of some of these refugees. And we're going to, in in their views, solve the problem that President Trump caused by not allowing refugees to come from certain African and Muslim countries. And immediately we saw really, really raw anger from Democrats who basically said openly and bluntly that he was not living up to a promise that he made. And what we heard from a lot of these Democrats was this is not some sort of symbolic theoretical problem. This is a real life human problem with real life human consequences. And that's what was so troubling to them. So then how is it that the Biden administration kind of backtracked again that after they said, look, we're actually going to hold off on increasing this cap, that they basically undid that announcement. Right. And to this day, the White House denies that they did backtrack on that. But the reality is there was a change between what they said 
on Friday morning, which is keeping the cap at 15,000. We might raise it at some point to what they said Friday afternoon, which was we expect that we will raise it at some point. We we are have every intention to increase the cap and to make an announcement of that by May 15th at the latest, and I expect it will be sooner than that. The president also remains committed to pursuing the aspirational goal of reaching 125,000 uh, refugees by the end of the next fiscal year. What we saw during that day was an intense backlash from the party, and it's raised a lot of questions about how and why the White House made that move? Was it a reaction to this really, really intense criticism? Were they prepared for the kind of criticism and the level of criticism that they received? A lot of activists and human rights advocates you talk to say the reason why they shifted was because we spoke out, was because we voiced our anger, was because we went on social media, was because we issued these statements. That's what prompted this change. White House denies that, but that's what advocates say. So at the time of this announcement, what what did the Biden administration say was their justification for why they had to roll back what they had originally promised? Well, they pointed out a few things. One, they said, look, the program was decimated, effectively gutted under the last administration. It's taken its time. And they said they wanted to use a phased approach. And in a press briefing that morning, Jen Psaki was asked before this initial announcement on Friday was made about the refugee program. And she then pointed to the border and the strains the administration was under. It took us some time to see and evaluate how ineffective or how uh, trashed in some ways the refugee processing system had become. And so we had to uh, rebuild some of those muscles uh, and put it back in place. Refugee advocates we've talked to said that explanation was not one that satisfied them, was not valid. They saw it as a poor excuse, connecting things that should not be connected and they were very they were left very unsatisfied by by these explanations. And what do these decisions mean for the people who are around the world waiting to hear word that they will be able to safely come to the US? Like what are the stories that you've heard about people's experiences and how their lives are upended by this uncertainty? Yeah, this is a question I pose to these resettlement groups and human rights advocates and members of Congress who work on this and the stories they told were pretty stark. They talked about hundreds of flights that had to be canceled that were sort of ready to go for refugees coming to the United States. I talked to one advocate who said there was a pregnant woman who was ready to come, who had a window in which she could fly. And she missed that window because it became too late in her pregnancy and she was no longer cleared to travel. I heard a story about a family that had prepared to come and had sold all of their belongings, were preparing to uproot themselves and were unable to do that. So the human toll and the real life consequences of this are something that, you know, these advocates and and lawmakers have pointed to and said, look, this is not a theoretical problem, a hypothetical thing that we can sort of debate uh, and, and take our time with because this is really, really urgent. And we saw that criticism really, really erupt in a sharp way last week. So what do you think this back and forth says about how prepared the Biden administration is to actually execute on a plan of changing how this country accommodates refugees? Well, it's raised some pretty significant questions about how prepared they are, not just from a policy perspective, but from a political perspective. What does this administration and what does this president want to do on immigration? Because they've shown 
at different junctures that they are sensitive to criticism from the left when it comes to activists, immigration activists, liberal activists, others who say you need to be more humane. But they're also sensitive to criticism from the right that says you guys are too open, that you guys are too welcoming, that you're creating a dangerous immigration system that's endangering the lives of Americans. And so they're in this sort of middle ground right now where uh, they've taken heat from all sides and haven't really navigated a course that looks like one that can avoid criticism at this point. Sean Sullivan covers the White House for The Post. Rennie Svernovsky produced the story. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial monarchmoney.com slash podcast. And now one more thing from Dan Baltz, the chief political correspondent for The Post. I've worked for The Post for about 40 years, just a little bit more than that. Dan has been covering campaigns for a long time. I covered Mondale in the 1984 campaign. I covered him extensively when he ran for president and and got to know his team very well and, and obviously got to know him a little bit. Thank you very much. In the realm of people who run for president, Walter Mondale may have been one of the most normal people who sought that office. Behind us now is the most wide open race in political history. It was a roller coaster, but it made me a better candidate and it will make me a stronger president of the United States. He was in many ways an old-fashioned liberal Democrat. He came out of the progressivism of the Midwest, the upper Midwest. He served in a variety of, of ways. He was attorney general at the state of Minnesota. He was appointed to the Senate in 1964. You know, over time, he became a real force in the Senate. He worked on a variety of social welfare legislation. Open housing was an important um, feather in his cap. He did run for president, and and he lost in the biggest electoral landslide in the history of the country. He lost 49 of the 50 states. The only state he won was his home state of Minnesota. He barely won that. I think it was by, you know, in the neighborhood of 4,000 votes. The most important legacy that he has left is the transformation of the vice presidency. Until he became vice president, that office had been a, you know, a backwater. And he transformed it with the help of Jimmy Carter, obviously, uh, into something significant. And every vice president who's served since owes him a debt of gratitude. 
uh, when we were first talking about running together, I told him that I, that I loved the Senate, and in fact, I thought I could help him more in the Senate than I could in such a um, thin role in the White House. Carter made it clear that he wanted the vice president to be an asset, but it was really left to Mondale to kind of flesh that vision out. There was a meeting at Blair House in December of 1976, after they had both been elected and were preparing for the inauguration. And they spent an hour or so talking about the vice presidency. And it was at that meeting that Mondale began to, to lay out the kinds of things he thought he would need in order to be what he called an across-the-board advisor. He needed to be able to be in any meeting with the president, not just where decisions were made, but where issues were being hashed out. But the second thing that went along with that, which was had never, I don't think, ever been asked for, was that he had access to all the paper flow that went through the Oval Office. He said he wanted to take on troubleshooting responsibilities when the president needed them. These would be high-level issues, whether it was doing negotiations on Capitol Hill or dealing with foreign heads of state or foreign ministers. Carter agreed to everything. And, and then he gave Mondale an, an office in the West Wing. Basically, this was the first vice president who was really in the, in the West Wing. That became the working model. One of the things that I think is important to think about is the other thing that Mondale did, not while he was vice president, but when he was a candidate for president, and that was in the selection of Geraldine Ferraro as his running mate. When he began the vice presidential selection process, he brought to Minnesota for interviews a whole group of people who in the previous years never would have been considered as vice presidential contenders. Two black mayors, a young Hispanic mayor, three women. Nobody had ever kind of reached out in such a dramatic way uh, to suggest that the office of vice presidency ought to be open to somebody other than a white man. My vice president will be Geraldine Ferraro. He, in the end, picked Geraldine Ferraro. It was a historic pick. John McCain picked Sarah Palin as his running mate, and Joe Biden picked Kamala Harris, and in a sense, in the fulfillment of the vision of Mondale that those doors should continue to be open, Kamala Harris is now the vice president of the United States. I mean, that's clearly, again, part of his legacy. We opened a new door to the future. Mr. Reagan calls it tokenism. We call it America. Walter Mondale died on Monday. He was 93 years old. He was in Minnesota, surrounded by family. As he was dying, he sent a very tender message to all of the people who had worked for them, basically saying, my time is, you know, my time is about up. I'm ready to rejoin my wife and daughter who had preceded him in death. But I want to thank all of you for being the best staff that anybody ever had. And again, it was a kind of a typical of Mondale's graciousness and, and decency and humanity that in his last moments, uh, he, was, he was thinking about the people who had worked for him over so many years. Dan Boltz is a chief political correspondent for The Post. Rena Flores produced this story.
That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Lena Muhammad. If you are a fan of this podcast, you can always help us by leaving a review on your podcast app. We always appreciate the feedback, and it helps other podcast listeners discover our show. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 